Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting for the last 10 to 12 years. He might be a late bloomer to disruption, but he's definitely shaking up the status quo. We're talking to him today because he's taken the last 40 years of project management and thrown it out the window as we know it. Those preconceived notions of delivering projects on time and our budget are no longer the status quo. Coming to us live from the greater Chicago area, please welcome our disruptor, author, and founder and CEO at PS Principles, Shane Anastasi. Hey, KJ, how are you? <laughs> Good. <laughs> I was being the background. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I'm good today. How about you? Very good, thank you. Summer and things are looking good. Yeah, well, you're in Chicago, and summer in Chicago is awesome and hot. Well, just a thousand times better than when it's not summer. <laughs> <laughs> it's so very true, right? Yes. So very true. All right, so let's get into this because I am super in interested in throwing out project management as we know it out the window. <laughs> but tell me and tell our audience, what is your main ingredient for disruption? So KJ, I think that with disruption, it's very easy to maybe sometimes get distracted by the excitement of the disruption itself, right? The carnage that can kind of be enticing and also kind of like, you know, interesting to people as they go about and, and come up with new ideas. But I think that successful disruption comes about when what we are able to do is to revolutionize the method, but while keeping the intent pure. And so what I mean by that is one of the things that we do as PS principles is we train organizations to develop skills as opposed to just consume content. Mm. And the way that we've revolutionized that is to focus on the fact that when we get people to do things in the field, it's not important whether or not the outcome is successful or not. Once somebody does something and they have the goal that they must be successful, well, then that would change the general kind of purity of learning. Learning mm -hmm. is about doing things right and wrong. And so we've revolutionized. We get people to take content put it into the field, but under the clear understanding that it's very likely they might fail the first time that they try and do it, maybe the second and the third. But it's the process of writing that down and then analyzing it yourself and getting management or subject matter expert feedback to the intent of learning pure. So if we can completely change a method, but keep the intent pure, then what we're truly doing is disrupting. Now, if we apply that, say, to project management, and you mentioned one of my strongest beliefs is that projects don't need to be on time and on budget. Yeah, we have to make sure. I'm, that we're I'm able sure to... I have just have to say our listeners are like, what? <laughs> yeah, this is this to me because freeing yourself from what I'll call a shackle that we've been handed about project management, especially customer facing project management. And I do need to be clear because. There are lots of different kinds of projects, right. but the ones that I'm talking about specifically are those customer facing technology projects that we implement. And the general idea of believing that projects need to be on time and on budget really don't encapsulate the intent of what a customer facing project needs to achieve. A customer facing project needs to achieve full client. And for those of us that implement them, it needs to achieve a profitable finish. Mm -hmm. That's what a successful project should be. So in revolutionizing the way that we want project managers managing projects, we had to make sure that we were able to identify what the pure intent of a project was, which actually wasn't encapsulated in the previous objectives. And the more research we did, 
the more that we found out that intent pretty much just came from the construction industry. And there's an article written in, I think, the 80s, and, and forgive me if anybody looks it up it's here, uh, it might actually be a little earlier than that. And the general point of the article was trying to assist project managers in the engineering field. And it was being done in a way to try and compare projects that were being done in the construction industry. Hmm. But of course, in the construction industry, all the design, the bill of materials, the blueprinting, all of that is done prior to the contract actually beginning its development. And hence, at that point in time, the general idea that was proposed was that construction industry projects are on time and on budget. Well, how can we emulate that as this new developing field of software development and implementation? But if you really look at the true dynamics, and this is what my new book is going to focus on from a perspective of project management, which is to understand the different dynamics that are at play inside of a project so that we can manage those instead of trying to manage to the budget. Not that the budget isn't important. It is clearly important because that's all the money the client has. But if we manage to the dynamics and we can actually see what's happening inside the project, we can result or end in a place that is more referenceable from a client's perspective and still more profitable from the service provider's perspective. But to revolutionize that process, the intent has to be pure. It has to be still to give the client a service of value. They'll look back on and say, that was a great service. But they will look back on and say, well, we made money and we gained a reference. And so what we do in what we teach, especially around project management, is we swap those goals so that we can then create a process that meets with that endpoint. And that's really what we're trying to do in the project customer facing project management sphere is to try and teach project managers how to be more in tune with the environment that they get placed in because a, a unique element of project delivery is that every project is unique. Mm -hmm. Different team, different objective, different customer, different customer politics, right? All of these things end up creating a unique environment that every project manager needs to adapt to. And so what we do is we try and teach how you do that. How does this go against the status quo? I mean, the status quo is on time and on budget, but what problems and ills is that causing with cost, yes. with overload, with, you know, like spell it out for me. So I always think this is a great, way to describe it. And we do this in our training class on project management. Let's take each of those and have a look at how we change our behavior trying to meet them. Mm -hmm. So let's say I have a project scope and I've agreed with the client, we're going to implement 20 functions. And so the first thing that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be on time. Well, if I take the time to build all 20 properly, I know I'm going to blow the time. So I go back to the customer and I say, we're going to be over time. And they say, you can't be over time. So I begin to focus on how I can squeeze those 20 functions into the time that I've got. Now, project managers know of this thing called the triple constraint, which basically says you have time, effort, and scope. And those three are joined together. And if you move one of those things, the others move with them. You can't create more scope in less time or the same amount of time. You need more time, right? Mm -hmm. You can't change these constraints without, or one of those constraints without changing the others. So I can't build those 20 functions in the time that I've got. And if I try, I'm going to do that poorly. Which or you're going to bring in more people that are going to escalate your costs out of control, exactly. right? So now what I'm faced with is I am going to blow the budget or I'm going <laughs> to give the client a lesser quality outcome. I'm actually now diverging from what I want to achieve. So trying to make a project on time is kind of crazy. And if you go back to a customer and you say to them, I can give you a quality outcome three weeks later, or I can rush it and give you a lesser quality outcome on time, almost every client. And I'm yet to find one. Oh, actually, that's not true. There is an example that I have where we did decide to do time over quality. But almost all occasions, customers will agree they would rather wait than for something to be on time. Now, the 
illustration that we use for that sometimes is let's say you ordered a beautiful, wonderfully decked out Mercedes Benz from the factory. Mm-hmm. You were waiting for it to be delivered. And they said to you, it's six weeks. And you wait that six weeks and you're so pumped to get this wonderful machine that you have custom built for KJ. Well, they call you the week before and they say, ah, look, you know, there's been a delay at the factory. It's going to be another four weeks before we actually have your vehicle ready. But if you want, we have one that's close to what you configured Uh, available now. What do you want to do? Now, you might decide to take the one now. But the joy of that is only going to last the amount of time that it would have been for you to get the real one that you wanted, right? And after that, all you have is regret. Yeah. So people don't really care about time as much as we kind of say that they do, because at the end, what they want is a quality outcome. So that's time. And if we focus on time, and I've seen this before in post-project reviews, I've seen teams basically say to me, we gave the customer a crap result because what they wanted was the deadline. And when I asked, did you go back and ask them to give them that choice? Which is it that you want? The answer is always no. And that was one of those ahas. Like, why are we doing this? And why doing- didn't they ever do that? I mean, it, it seems like such a simple solution. It's definitely a soft skill to be able to handle that kind of conversation, right? An origination, but wh- why? Why haven't they done that? It's so ingrained, KJ, in the way that project management is taught by project management, industry associations, and universities when they teach project management. And in fact, when they teach project management, the last thing they teach about, if they teach about it at all, is a paying customer within a project. Mm -hmm. So if you read, say, the PMI body of knowledge that project managers go through, it's only recently incorporated anything to do with the customer. And even with that, it's very, very subtle. There might be a customer in a project. And mind you, they're trying to look at projects as a broad body of knowledge. And yeah. But we're talking about, you know, what, what, what those bodies of knowledge will say and what most project management training will say is, well, if the project needs more time, you make sure that you get more time. That's or you, you know, you just agree that it will change. And the problem you have when it's a paying customer on the other side, they don't want to agree. Right. They don't want to change the budget. They don't want to change their vision of what they're going to get. They don't want to change the fact that you've built up this expectation and now that expectation needs to change. They will force you as the service provider to feel guilty for not meeting their expectations. And we don't teach project managers how to deal with that. And that's why they do it. They, they, are, they are basically trained from the day that they learn project management that the objective is to be on time and on budget and that that defines their success as a project manager. And to be frank, it's just wrong. It's entirely misguided. <laughs> so the first one's on time. The second one is on budget. Budget is a funny thing because we want to stay on budget, but... As you go through a project, one of the things that you realize about projects is that they're actually journeys of discovery. And what we mean by that is that no project actually knows what it's doing when it starts. It has an idea and it has a very feebly worked out idea because it's based on loose requirements that the customer gives you when they know nothing about the realities of trying to execute that thing. Again, a very difference between bridge building and software development. When we build bridges, we do land surveys. We know the materials that we use. We know the, you know, the tensile strength of all the materials that we're using. It's a known quantity. It's calculable. We, we kind of know what we're doing. The little variations occur out in the field. They do occur, but we deal with them because we kind of understand the science of it. When we're implementing a project, we kind of, we paint the picture with very broad dots, And there's lots of gaps. And then as we go through the project, we fill those gaps in. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, we learn the reality of implementing the project. That is always going to impact the budget. Now, it's the client's budget. And so what you need to do as you do that process is explain to the client what it is that we're discovering so that they can determine what they want to do about budget. And what we found is that in almost all occasions, again, especially when it comes down to corporate money, they'll go find the money. Now, the big problem we do is we set the expectation of on time on budget from the beginning. And when we do that, the customer doesn't want to go get more money. 
So when we ran a company on this, we, we started a company called Cirrus One back in 2016. And the general premise of that company was to put all of these ideas to the test so that we could actually get real world feedback because you know it was kind of pointless just believing in theory. We had right. to go put it into practice and see what happened. Customers will always go back and find budget if the value is there, right? One of the things I've, I've believed ever since early on in my career is that it's not really that person's money, right? The sponsor of the project. That, that the money comes from this enterprise bucket of money and that that company has no real feelings as to whether or not it cares about it getting or giving you another $100,000. So the person cares about the $100,000 because it makes them feel like that they're not getting the original value that they intended. And so if you set the premise of your project to be that we will learn more as we go through the project and you will have to make decisions about how to use your budget, that then changes their mentality around how to change the budget as the project progresses. And the one thing that I don't want, and this is what we did when we set the company up, was to explain to our project managers, we don't want our projects to finish on time and on budget. We don't. We have zero degree of care in that. What we care about is did we make money from the project? That's all we do as a company, by the way. So it's the only way that we make revenue, right? So right. If, if you don't make money on this project, we don't get paid. The second thing is it has to end with a referenceable client. Now, so that means a happy client. They're a happy obviously. client. Yeah, now, yeah. The, the, the interesting thing about that is a lot of people will say, well, I want outcome-based project pricing. That's a, that's a technology services industry statement, right? Let's move to outcome-based pricing. The problem that I've got, which now flies in the face of another thing that we get told is that the customer is always right. Well, the reality is, is that over my years of 30 years of doing customer facing projects, I've given lots of pretty reasonable solutions to really poorly operating customers. Now, I don't want to be mean to those customers, but I have no control over how they run their business. So if I give you a perfectly good solution that matches everything that you asked for, but in your asking for that, you completely misunderstood your own business model or the environment in which you work gets hit with a recession or some other kind of turmoil, that's outside of our control. So trying to establish the fact that success would be driven on the customer's ability to achieve an outcome from the solution that you gave them basically moves it all to a position where it's outside of your control. And I think that happens in so many industries, pay for play, pay on results. You actually don't really know if they're that good of a business person or a company that really <laughs> knows how to operate. You don't. Right. And so why take that gamble? Why take that gamble with your business? And especially for the kind of solutions that we typically implement, we're not implementing things that just immediately create a result. There's a sales process or there's a marketing machine that needs to go with it. There's, you know, there's an execution element that that customer needs to be able to implement successfully. So outcome-based approaches, as far as I'm concerned, are, are pointless to try and follow because they're all going to end in the same result. Some will be successful because some will actually collect the information and the data to show you they achieved an outcome. And they actually have their stuff together and can implement. Yeah. That's really not the majority. That That is not, the, as I say, that is not rare. the majority. Like, no, that is not real. I, I tell you what we've, we've learned though, is that to, to kind of swing the needle a little bit, what we have learned is that when we take this approach, most customers are willing to take this approach and see projects from this perspective. There is about, and we our numbers based on our you know limited kind of 200, 300 projects that we've been doing this over, is that about one in 75 is just the numbers that we have, tend to still want to take the view because they believe it advantages them that you are the service provider and you will do what I want. That's and they don't let you lead and they don't let you use your expertise to guide them to a better outcome. And if that's the case, if it's one in 75, then I'll take those odds. And when we do get a yeah, project Yeah, that's a small like that, percentage, of course. It's a small percentage and we will just get out of those projects as quickly as we can. If we need to forego some profit to do that, then that's what we'll do. And don't we'll get out of it as quickly as possible. Don't you think that comes from 
them not really knowing the impact that the outcome is going to have on their business. Yep. Like they, they just have such missing data and being able to relate it down to the valuable final product of the business, right? That's true. I think that sometimes though, it's as a result of what we might call kind of like, you know, institutional or corporate trauma, right? And so, you know, these customers, because we do love them, have been kind of screwed by consulting companies over and over again. They've seen projects go south over and over again. And so as a result of that, they believe that every time they get a consulting company involved to run their project, that they're going to get screwed. So now their back is up. <laughs> and they come with a preconceived idea, almost like a hidden standard. That's it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's corporate trauma. And so what, what, what we attempt to do as a part of our sales cycle is to weed some of those out. If yeah. you're not going to look at it this way, if you're not going to let us lead you with the expertise of a thousand projects, then maybe we're not the guys for you. And that's and a that, great position to be in. I mean, you've obviously done enough research and discovery to determine your numbers and know what works. Yeah. When was your epiphany? When was your like trial by fire or the crucible or like the, oh crap moment, I've got to fix this. Yeah, I joined a software company called Big Machines, which was ultimately bought by Oracle back in 2010. And I think I'd been involved with the company for maybe a week or two. And I was starting to see that as a professional services team, we were running at a very large loss. I got invited to a breakfast with the investment firm that was funding the company. Lovely breakfast and a very nice to me breakfast. And just as the breakfast was ending, they basically kind of laid it out on the line. You know, we have this big ask of you. And we went to a meeting room after that and they explained your organization is pretty much choking the company. You losing a truckload of money, not your fault, right? We just got you in here, but we want to make sure that it's clear you're losing a truckload of money and we can't sustain this. Now, that loss is coming from 70 plus projects that we all agreed to do at a fixed fee price. So basically we had ran out of budget. And so now we were funding the continued development and finishing of each of those projects. And they said, your job, and they didn't give me an option if you choose to accept it. They just said, this is your job. You will go and exit every single one of those projects by going to the customer and saying that we are not going to fulfill our obligation under the contract. We've spent enough. We've put enough blood into this. It's time for you to pony up and accept that you're a part of the problem. And when I first heard it, I still remember hearing it for the first time. I was kind of like, you're kidding, right? I mean, this is this is ridiculous. This is like, you know, how, how, how am I going to do that? Almost like this is impossible. What and, fresh hell did I just enter now? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I mean, I've been doing this for like almost 20 years at that point. And I was kind of like, I just, how did I get here? How, how is this my job? And that's what it was. And so I started doing it. These guys were great. The guys that supported me, I mean, they were, they were really, really great. They, they knew what the ask meant. They knew that this had probably not really been done before to this degree, but they, they knew that it was possible. So maybe they had done it somewhere else. And they were, they were adamant that it was possible. And I just had to believe in them at that point. And they said, what do you need? And they, we laid out certain things, especially things like stopping selling any more fixed fee projects at that point in time. Not that you can't make money in fixed fee projects, you can. But for us at that point in time, we weren't doing it right. So they supported me on that. We, I had absolute board approval on anything that we needed to change. And then we went out and we started to talk to clients and we started to say, hey, we're done. We had a $120,000 project. We're now $250,000 into this. You're Ouch. not giving us the information that we need. You're not being clear about what it is that you want. You keep changing the requirements. Yes, we keep <laughs> agreeing to change the requirement, but we've got to stop that bad behavior. But you have to stop your bad behavior. And the more that we did this, the more that we got as a pretty general normal response from the customer was, yeah, no, you're right. We're surprised it took you this long, right? Wow. They're so, going to ride that wave as long as they can. What percentage of them just were like, F you? Almost none. So we did it. We did it for <laughs> I 70, love it. We did it for 70 plus projects. And out of that, we lost some, right? Yeah. But it was in an understanding way. And maybe out of that 70, maybe five, we lost. The rest all agreed to a reasonable way forward. 
Sometimes it was with profitable rates. Sometimes it was, was with at cost rates, right? But we were mm -hmm. able to stop the bleeding. And when you go back and look at the chart of what we were able to do in a 12-month period, we took the organization from something like a negative 20-point margin organization to a positive 20-point margin organization, literally by just dealing with these bad projects. But what we learned from that was a whole bunch of stuff. We learned one of the customer's motivations is that they will milk it. They will literally continue to bleed you dry if you don't say something. Mm -hmm. Now, and it's not that they're evil, and, I, and, I, and I, it's, it's hard sometimes to talk about this without coming across as almost kind of like a customer kind of vigilante, like I'm out there trying to make them pay, because you can't do it that way. You have to love them, right? Yeah, and I also think it's also collective thought agreement. I mean, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have yep. like institutional pain points, which you mentioned, institutional trauma, you have past things, and then you have this collective thought agreement that's gone on for however long that, that you're going to just ride the wave, right? Yep. It, Every it does customer, take individuals to rise above that to say, we got to fix it. And that's why we look at project dynamics, because project dynamics has to include the customer's motivational intent. Mm -hmm. And every customer has the motivation to want the greatest amount of value for the least amount of price. You want that. I want that as a customer. If we walk into any store, yes, we want quality. And people say, well, don't forget the customers will pay for quality. They will, but they still want the greatest amount of value for the least amount of price. Nobody ever wants to overpay. So when these situations start to occur, their default is to assume that you're not going to charge them. Their default is to argue that they shouldn't have to pay. But when you bring this to their attention and you describe that they do have to pay because it has other costs that haven't been calculated in or whatever the reason is, they are very amenable to understanding that this is business. Mm -hmm. But their initial intent or response is always to maximize the value without increasing the price. And so... It's learning that behavior, right? And as we did this process and we learned that these things, I started to realize, and from my perspective, for the whole industry of you know project delivery, this was just this was just the thread that I started to pull at. And the more that I tugged at the thread of what kind of makes up this industry and the mentality and the frameworks that we use, I just started to realize how completely misguided it was. And that we don't ever train people on this stuff because they're actually technicians. So if you think about it, all consultants, experts in something other than customer facing consulting. <laughs> yet we call them consultants. And so we started to think about what are the skills that you need in order to perform a technical skill in front of a paying customer. And that's where we started to develop the seven principles of professional services, which then when we went to go put that into practice at Cirrus One, became what we're going to write about next, which is customer facing project dynamics. And so it's really the more that we've pulled at this thread, the more that we realize there are just misguided ways in which we look at things that we can easily change. As long as we keep that intent pure, right? We love the customer and we're doing it out of love, not out of spite, not out of trying to screw them to get more money. It's if you make them happy with the service you're providing, that will then continue the growth of your business. And that's what we proved with Cirrus One. You just took the elephant in the room that was really just not being visible and you made it very visible, right? Yep. And you just exposed it, right? And I find the simplest solutions are the most disruptive, right? I mean, this changed the whole trajectory of your career. Oh, for sure. It changed, it changed my mentality as a person, funnily enough, because it's kind of like, I think putting it into practice probably did more. I had a conversation with somebody about six months after starting Cirrus One, and I didn't start it, and there was a founder, and then I joined it. But having started there for six months, and we, the intent of the organization between all the partners was to try and live these seven principles in how we executed projects. And somebody asked me, like, how's it going? Like, uh, are you having fun trying to live the book? And I said, I got to tell you, I've learned more about project delivery in the last six months than I probably learned up until this point. Like, we were discovering stuff, like, every week on how to explain this to clients. The idea of 
projects being a journey of discovery and believing in that and putting that at the base of what we do. All of this happened because we just kept pulling at the thread. And so what is it that we replace it with and having to come up with that? If it wasn't on time, on budget, what does it need to be? And then somebody else would say to me, because I've told you too, you know, we need a referenceable client, we need to make money. But then my team at some point turned around and said, yeah, but we have to also not get burned out as a part of the process. Yeah. Right. So there's the third element. And now we actually have the proper trinity that says, these are the three things that we're trying to do on a project, make money, cut referenceable clients, but not burn our consultants out at the same time because we don't want to lose consultants because of bad customers. What book is this? What is the name of the book? We don't have a title yet, but it's most likely going to be something along the lines of customer facing project dynamics. Okay. Well, my COO would want that when you get done with it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that so many people that we've talked to who aren't people who necessarily are project focused, the minute that you start talking about these customer facing projects, all of us in industry have been involved with them. I'm a, I'm a customer facing project receiver at points when I pay service providers. We all have an interest in this. And to me, there's an industry out there of something like 11 million project managers and we are completely misguiding them. And so our job as peers principals, you know, amongst some other things is to get out there and try and get to them so that we can really kind of change and improve the industry as a whole. Because to be honest, we have a very bad reputation. We haven't even talked about this yet, but if you grab any of the data on customer facing project management, all you read is about disaster and mayhem. You read about how bad we are in what we do, and we have a bad reputation. Even the stats bear that out. As professionals, we achieve success on a project according to on time, on budget. Again, so you know, do I really care about those numbers? But the, the statistics that we have in the industry is we're about 65% successful. Well, if you went to any other profession, a bridge builder, a house builder, a haircutter, a lawyer, if you were only 65% successful in the service that you delivered, you wouldn't be considered a professional. No, you wouldn't. Right. If only 65% of golfers were able to like, you know, shoot below par in, in, in the pro tour, they wouldn't be considered professional. We have to find a way to actually make what we do an actual profession. Because to be honest, what we're doing is we're doing, we're slapping kind of titles on project managers, we're slapping certifications on them that don't result in better outcomes. Well, that is the status quo. And so what does PS principles do? We do a number of things. We started off just teaching consultants how to be consultants. And so we taught the soft skills of turning subject matter experts like developers into customer facing consultants. When we ran the Cirrus One experiment, that turned into, okay, so now there's a kind of another field in addition to that, which is really project dynamics. And so we have to teach that to project managers. And so that's a part of what we do. But one of the things that I got into almost as a side project was the effectiveness of learning. Because like probably a lot of other people out there, I'm frustrated sometimes with trying to change the behavior of large teams. We call that business transformation. You can call that whatever you want, change management. But essentially, when I'm running a large consulting team, I want to change their behavior in front of customers. And so I started to look at training from a perspective of behavior change. And that got me into things like neuroplasticity and the way that we learn cognitive journaling, right? Uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral, uh, behavioral therapy, and things like that, that then guided how I would take the content that we create and turn it into action. And so what PS Principles has turned into over time is not just this kind of organization that focuses on professional services inside of software companies. We also have developed a platform that teaches skill development to large groups of people at once that actually changes their behavior over time. We take content from its original content consumption, and then we give people actionable guidance on how to use that content and develop skills all the way through to then mentoring others at the end of that process. And if you think about the logical way that we want learning to happen inside an organization is, KJ, you, you come in today and you're a novice, right? We're going to onboard you. We're going to make you competent. Then we're going to make you a decision maker, then a leader. Then once you're a leader, we're going to ask you to start to become a master and mentor others. And so our platform actually facilitates that process 
by giving you the guidance you need to put the content into practice and then eventually start to mentor others and give feedback to them. I love this. It is like a behavioral paradigm shift in the corporate world of getting people to have judgment and being able to observe, guide, and act. Exactly. And guide. Right. And God. So, so, right. so, so one of the samples that we did, we did. So again, this could not be our content. So one example where it was not our content was where we do, we do a lot of customer success management training. And we took 250 customer success managers in an organization that were in something like 127 countries. Now that was so distributed because they are based at airports, right? All of their CSMs customer success managers are based at airports. All of these guys actually were moved from another division. And so rather than kind of, you know, releasing them, they turned that division into customer success management. So they had zero customer success management experience. And basically our job as PS principals was to roll this program out across the 127 countries in, at once to change their behavior from being operations people into customer success managers. And that process, it doesn't take six months. It takes two years to do that. And that's what our platform does. Our platform gives you the content or we can deliver the content. We'll get the author to deliver the content or somebody else, you know, we, we know how to train, but we, you know, if we did not create the content then somebody else is usually better at delivering it. So we'll facilitate that process, but that's just the beginning. Then what we do is we say now, and as we deliver the content, we'll say, go into the field and use it. Identify a client that you don't know everybody and go introduce yourself to one more person in that organization who has decision-making capability. That's a task. Why would you do that? Well, you do that for account expansion, for relationship development. Go do that and then come back and tell us what happened. Maybe you failed at it. But if you failed at it, then we can give you feedback as to why we think you failed at it. And now it's a learning experience. And that's that whole idea of Eventually, what PS Principles has also turned into is not just a kind of think tank for professional services inside the technology industry, but also this kind of side platform that we have that allows organizations to change the behavior of large teams at once. And so we've been doing this now for a few years, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a lot of hard yeah, work. As you can imagine, it's not... It's not easy to coordinate all of these people across the globe and time zones. And we kind of have a, we have a global time zone meeting organizer that we kind of built in a spreadsheet to kind of work out, you know, you tell us where all the countries are that your people are in, and then we'll try and group that and find the time zones that would best suit. Like, how do we, how do we teach 127 people, 250 people in 127 countries only using eight sessions, right? And so what we have to There's do very project management again. <laughs> this is this is a this is a data exercise, man. Time and date is like the worst data to work with because yeah. it's never stable. It changes because of daylight savings and all that kind of stuff. And even once you have the patterns, it's it's just really, really difficult to work out. So but eventually it's you know, it all it all comes to fruition and we do it. But the results are spectacular as far as we're concerned. I mean, everybody that we do this with, I think that's a parrot. You mentioned this before, it's a paradigm shift, right? Yeah. So people can struggle with that. That's actually one of our kind of inhibitors. People will look at it and just say, oh, this isn't for us. Yet some people will look at it and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is exactly what I want. And you know, I think the way that it sits at the moment, we just don't get enough of the latter because it is a paradigm shift. People are stuck in the mindset of curriculum development. I have to spend years developing the curriculum in order to make the curriculum enticing and easy to learn. Yeah, well, you're talking Probably. about this whole paradigm shift that has really been shifting as far as the consumers are changing the way corporations do things today, whether they're B2B or B2C, right? It, yeah. it is a generational shift. It's definitely been accelerated by many things. Well, it's, um, it's very true. The, the, the individual employee is wanting to be treated more like a consumer, yeah. At work, right? I, I I want I want what I want. I want my greatest amount of value for the least amount of price. And so give it to me now, give it to me when I want it, how I want it. Otherwise, I'm gonna go somewhere else. And so we we think we fit into that and in kind of how we do training. We we only ever build when we record training, we only ever record it in 15 minute increments so that people can do stuff on planes, they can kind of do it in a taxi, they can consume stuff. But when we do it in person, we take a completely different way of looking at it, which is that we have to have 
discussion about the topics. And so we end up doing these kind of like mixed content and discussion sessions whereby, you know, we'll tell you something, but then we'll say, now let's talk about how this works at your organization. Right. You guys tell me, how does this work where we are at the moment? Give me an example of where this has happened inside your organization. And when you first start it, you just hear crickets, like nobody wants to talk. <laughs> and you remind them very quickly that you're comfortable with silence. You sit and you wait and eventually the talking. Yeah, because they're not comfortable with silence. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the talking begins. And once the talking begins on these things and they realize that nobody's getting punished for discussing these topics, nobody's really under fire, nobody's under the microscope, it's all about sharing our experiences, then all of a sudden things start to open up. Yeah, it's probably pretty awesome to get that some it's, some ideation, feedback. And then I learn. What? And then I learn. Yeah, of course. So so the greatest part of everything that we do, and I must say this, is that I'm constantly stunned. And, you know, a lot of people know this, but what I don't know, right? And that there's so much for me to continue to learn. In these discussion groups that we have, it's weekly, monthly, I'm I'm discovering these little aha nuggets. And I I literally right now have, you know, all the post-it notes over my desk because as they come up in the discussion groups, I'm like, that's an article. That's an article that I haven't explored yet. And we jot it down and try and write about it later because these people, when you open their minds and they start to talk and they start to give you your perspective, you start to learn as well. You know, you're creating a whole universe. People are amazing. They do have incredible input and ideas. I mean, in my world, we create universes via ideas. You're doing the same thing. And those ideas then become the framework and actually materialize in the physical universe. Yep. So I applaud you for that. That's we actually learned that. So my my first book, The Seven Principles of Professional Services. So I'm big in the, the concept of how collective wisdom actually grows over time. If we look at what I write down is I'm trying to write collective wisdom books. I'm not a novelist, right? I, I write down what I believe is a collective wisdom that I've gathered up until a point. But the beauty of trying to then go put it into practice was that I learned that in certain parts, I'm just plain wrong. Well, right. <laughs> but then that has to change. That changes the training, right? And yeah. so we try and change the training to identify the areas where, yeah, it was the collective wisdom at that point in time, but now it's changed because we've learned it doesn't work. And so one of the general premises of consulting that all consultants will say is that, you know, our job is to manage expectations. And when you actually pick that apart, and I wrote a whole chapter called Managing Expectations, right? But I suddenly realized it wasn't working and I couldn't understand why. And then when I dug deeper than I had dug before, because I, again, I took, the, I took the premise that people had always talked about this, that it must be true. You can't manage somebody else's expectations. Like expectations are such this, this wild kind of uncontrollable thing. Like your expectations are your expectations. And the funny thing is the aha for me was when you look at what they teach kind of in drug rehab or alcohol rehab, right? Is that expectations are just premeditated resentments, right? If I begin to expect something of you, you didn't commit to that. I'm just expecting it of you. And then when you don't do that thing that I never told you about, then I'm going to be pissed. Right. And I started to take a leaf from that, which is that, okay, so I can't control a customer's expectations. What can I control? I can enforce consequences. That's what I can do. I can make sure that if you have a misaligned expectation, that a consequence is identified as going along with that expectation. I was wrong, completely wrong. And we learned well, it that. It takes a lot of breadth and depth to be able to admit you're wrong. But I think that's the beauty of the collective wisdom, right? Yeah. Is you just keep putting it into practice in these universes that you talked about. You just keep putting the stuff to practice. And by doing that and getting a wider view and getting more people, that's when the truth kind of comes out. Yep. To me, that's probably the best example that I can think of where for 22 years, I thought I was managing customer expectations, right? That's, that's the objective. And then all of a sudden, just it changes and it's all about consequence management. What's Sounds the like you've just identified the natural laws governing project management that are on the order of the physical sciences and it has it, to do with human behavior. 
It's actually very close to that. So we, we call it when we talk about consequence management is we actually have a grid or a table we created, which is about identifying the natural consequences for expectations, right? So if a client wants to slow a project down, which a lot of times they're like, oh, you guys are moving too fast. We can't make all the decisions we need to make. We need to slow down. Well, what are the natural consequences of slowing a project down? Well, our revenue slows. We lose time. So is the customer prepared to have us need to go work on other projects because they've slowed down our ability to generate revenue, which by the way, was never an agreement in the contract. Mm -hmm. right? So customers sign up to kind of bill at a certain rate, but then they change that rate almost at their own discretion, thinking that there's no consequence. Well, the consequence is you're gonna lose the focus of the team that you've got, right? So what we actually have is this table that kind of says, hey, look, here are the kind of where you find most of the natural consequences in projects. So let's take your situation and examine each one of those. And there's only six of them. Examine each one of those to identify where the consequences for this expectation misalignment are going to play out. But you're right. I, the, the way that we see it, it, it is about getting to what you might call into an area of just natural science. We talk about things like how does leverage work, understanding how leverage works, how do ultimatums work, how do I get you to buy into an ultimatum so that you want to meet with that deadline, not make me meet to that deadline. Right? <laughs> well, you know, I'm always a big proponent that most everything relates back to physics. Physics has consequences. Yeah. Um, yeah. It yeah, sounds absolutely. exactly what like what you're doing. I'm I'm, I'm has... actually I'm married to a therapist. And so the other thing is that everything ties back to how we think as humans. Yeah. Right? And so so definitely, you know, you'll find in what we teach, there's a lot of brain science in there because we do believe very strongly that on mass we're wired to work a certain way. And I think we play that out in business far more templative than we do say in society, because in society, we're constantly trying to break the norms. Right. Right. In business, we know that the norms work. We know that good process, that efficiency, that workflow, all these things, we know that they work. So, so, so the way that our brains work at work, they're predictable, very predictable. Very so, predictable. So we can play off of that, right? We can make use of that in how we address things. So this is where you may not be predictable. You gave me just a little tiny insight of your life. You're married to a therapist. You obviously are an independent thinker. What do you do outside of, of work that, that like, where does, like, how do you infuse that into your passions? Are you completely different in your personal passions or hobbies outside of work? Yeah, there, there are parts of me that are completely different. So I'm an incredibly structured thinker, but I'm fine. And I don't, I don't mean living in mess, but I'm fine with not being super tidy. So we tidy up every now and then. I clean the garage on the weekend, but, you know, it, it, it's not, you know, I don't live in squalor, but it's it's definitely like I, I don't keep a, a neat and tidy kind of place around me all the time. I'm not, I'm not too fussed with books everywhere and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, the rest of the stuff that I do, I sail, I golf, I spend time with my kids, soccer, I used to play Australian rules football. But in all of those things, what I bring from my work element is the understanding of why I do things a certain way or why we do things a certain way in order to try and, you know, golf is a great example of that. It's a repetitious process that we are constantly varying, right? And yeah. so what you're trying to work out in golf is how do I get into a position where I'm able to repeat, 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 repeat and go through the process. And so in all of these things, you know, even for the stuff I teach my kids, the value of practice, which is something that I learned through sport, right? The, the, the value of practice. And I don't believe that in work, we practice enough. We don't. Right. You're right. So you think about it, a pro, Right. Anyone that's a professional at what they do spends time in training and practice. NFL player practices probably five days a week, maybe even six, right? When do we practice as lawyers, as CEOs, as anything that we do in the business world? So I think to me, there is constantly crossover, but of course it's, you know, it's learning how to enjoy both. That's the other thing, right? I mean, I, I enjoy my work as, you know, almost as much as I enjoy the stuff outside of work. And, and, you know, that's the general guidance I give my kids, right? 
end up doing something that you love doing and then it isn't as much work. It's still work. It's bloody hard work, right? You got to, you know, long it's nights. It's still work, but I call it play with a purpose. Yeah, right. Play with a purpose. You got to dedicate yeah. yourself to uncovering or solving the problem. And it's yeah. not easy because if it was easy, somebody else would have done it already. Exactly. But be prepared to commit yourself to it, but enjoy doing it. And, and you know, I would say that, you know, I've always enjoyed it. Even back just working for IBM and doing stuff like that. It's always been a pleasure. So that's a great motto. It's a great motto to end on too, because I think listening to you all the way through this, I've come to the conclusion that what you do and how you do it has to be fun. And purposeful. And I think that's purposeful. something that we well, play something with we the purpose. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Define your purpose so that you have purpose, because if you don't, then you become aimless. And it's the same thing with the projects themselves, right? Exactly. What is the purpose of the project? But also, what is the purpose of your life? And what is it that you want to achieve while you're here? Because as somebody told me literally just the other day, there's no rewind button. We are constantly being pushed forward through time. So make a choice. Give it purpose. And if you don't, well, then don't be surprised if you feel as if you've become lost. <laughs> How do people get a hold of you, Shane? You can get us through www.psprinciples.com. You can send an email to info at psprinciples.com. The new book will be out probably in October, November timeframe, but we'll keep information on our website as to, you know, if you can pre-register for that and so on. But for the most part, just through those mechanisms and uh, we'll always reach back out to you. Great. And what is the name of the book that you already wrote? The Seven Principles of Professional Services. Okay, good. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, KJ. This has been a new take on project management. I was not expecting this. I'm so intrigued. <laughs> who, who thought that anybody cared this much? Who thought? <laughs> that's a wrap everyone if you learned something today or laughed go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show thank you for listening to disruption interruption where we transform lives change consumer behavior alter economics and never accept the status quo ciao for now because we live in a highly litigious society with america being one of the top litigious countries in the world Here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.